Did you know, one of the earliest Mario games that never left Japan is Mario World. No, not Super Mario World, just Mario World. Although this title could be played on the Famicom, basically Japan's version of the NES, you needed some additional hardware to run it. The Family Basic was an accessory bundle for the Famicom, a cartridge and keyboard combo which made it possible for users to enter custom code and run it on the Famicom. It was created by Nintendo in collaboration with Hudson Soft and Sharp Corporation and was released on June 21st, 1984. The Family Basic was essentially Nintendo's attempt at grabbing the attention of PC users and getting them interested in consoles. This wasn't the only version of the device, however. The Superior Family Basic V3 was released just seven months later on February 21st, 1985, featuring more memory, a distinct red cartridge, and most notably, four built-in games. These games were all programmed using the Famicom Basic language to show everyone what it was capable of. Three of the games feature Mario characters, but only Mario World actually lets the player control Mario. Mario must run, jump on springs, and climb ladders in order to collect the numbers 0 through 9 in order. Players can also collect apples and must evade two enemies, but nothing happens when everything in this single-screen game is collected. Players can only wait for the timer to run down to zero, resulting in a game over. For this video, we sifted through every single Mario game we could find that never came to America. But we decided we won't be covering games that the US later got through Virtual Console, on the eShop, or via Switch Online, like Mario's Super Picross. And we won't be covering region-specific ports that only have very minor differences, such as Super Mario 64's Shindo Pactayo version. And with that said, back to the games. While Mario World is an interesting footnote in the early history of Japan-exclusive Mario games, it wasn't the first dedicated Mario game that never saw a Western release. That accolade goes to I Am A Teacher, Super Mario No Sweater. The title was made by Royal Kugyo in collaboration with Nintendo and released on August 27, 1986 for the Famicom Disk System. In English, this game's name translates to something like I am a teacher, Super Mario's sweater. And as you might have guessed from the name, it's all about knitting. This game, and we're using the term game loosely here, is essentially a knitting guide that walks users through the process of knitting Super Mario-themed sweaters. The player can choose to knit sweaters, sweater vests, and cardigans, and can even input measurements to change the size of the sweater being made, with the game adjusting the guide accordingly to accommodate the size. There's several designs to choose from, and the game even tells players how much yarn and which yarn they'll need to make a design. But the game's noticeably lacking one thing. It doesn't actually explain how to knit. This is a problem that Royal Kugyo and Nintendo must have known as they released another game just one month later. I am a teacher, Timi no Kiso, which actually teaches players to knit but lacks the Mario branding. Exactly 15 years later, on the day of August 27th, 2001, Nintendo would release another game upon the world of fashion. Mario Family for the Game Boy Color. The game was first revealed alongside Kirby Family at Nintendo's Space World event in 2001, but it seemed to have little involvement from Nintendo itself. 
The title was developed by Natsume and published by sewing machine company Jaguar. This is because the game was made to work specifically with Jaguar's JN100 sewing machine via a special cable. Though this all sounds impressive, Mario Family is even less of a game than I Am A Teacher Super Mario No Sweater. All this title does is let the user select a Mario pattern, then the sewing machine prints it out as embroidery. As you might have guessed, a Mario title that needed a sewing machine costing hundreds of dollars sold poorly. It's believed the game's poor sales likely resulted in the cancellation of Kirby Family and probably killed what little chance this game had of coming to the West as well. But let's get back to Mario's earlier years. This next game actually recreates and remixes most of the original Super Mario Bros., but within the game engine of Super Mario Bros. 2, The Lost Levels. This game isn't just a reworking of a Mario title, however. It's themed almost entirely around Japan's All Night Nippon radio program, and is appropriately titled All Night Nippon Super Mario Bros. But instead of taking place in the Mushroom Kingdom, it's set in the Viva Kingdom, which comes from the show's slogan, Viva Young. It also swaps out all of the toads in Koopa's castles for hosts of the All Night Nippon show. Despite the differences, Mario's goal is still to rescue Princess Peach from King Koopa and free the kingdom's residents. The game was made by Nintendo in 1986 for the Famicom Disk System and published by Fuji TV. This game's tie-in deal came about after Fuji TV's sister company, Pony Canyon, published a Mario promo video a few years earlier. The promo featured a song that won an all-night Nippon contest, which asked entrants to put lyrics to the Super Mario Bros. theme song, which caught Nintendo's attention. Continuing the trend of unorthodox releases, All Night Nippon Super Mario Bros. release was far from ordinary, and was almost exclusively distributed via a raffle on the All Night Nippon radio program to celebrate its 20th anniversary. The magazines Famitsu and Famimaga also got to raffle off 20 copies each to their readers, with winners getting their copies in early 1987 but they were the lucky ones. The game is quite rare to this day, with only 3,000 copies being made for its initial run, and a limited number being sold in a second wave via mail order thanks to overwhelming demand. This venture strengthened the bond between Nintendo and Fuji TV, and Fuji TV would go on to publish Yumi Kojo Doki Doki Panic, which, if you haven't heard, was reworked into the Super Mario Bros. 2 that we played in the West. So a deal based on reworking the original Super Mario Bros. 2 led to the creation of the Western Super Mario Bros. 2 that was just a reworked version of Doki Doki Panic. Not hard to follow at all. Since All Night Nippon Super Mario Bros. is built on top of the Lost Levels, there's no two-player mode like the original Super Mario Bros. Players just get the option to play as Mario or Luigi. There's a bunch of other differences too, like World 1 taking place at night, and lots of miscellaneous graphical changes that make the game line up more with the style of the Lost Levels rather than the original Mario. A few of the game's enemies have also been replaced. And as well as some differences with power-ups and iconography, some of the background mushrooms are also replaced with microphones. 
We have to say though, the game still has tight controls and it's fun to play. We might find this game fascinating today, but it's pretty obvious why this game never left Japan. Western gamers at the time probably had close to zero interest in playing a Mario game based on a Japan-only radio show. Moving on to our next game, Punchball Mario Brothers was entirely developed and published by Hudson Soft in 1984. Nintendo essentially had nothing to do with this game, other than loaning Hudson the Mario Brothers license. The game was available for several Japanese home computer systems, with each version having unique differences due to the specs of the machines. Although it may look like it, this isn't simply a port of Mario Brothers. The game has new mechanics, like the titular Punch Balls, which can be tossed at enemies to stun and flip them and the floor tiles don't flip over enemies if hit from below. To beat enemies, players must use the punch ball or pow block before finishing them off. Punch balls must be recollected once thrown, and can only be thrown while the player stands still. The game also has two difficulty modes, A and B, with B being slightly more difficult. As the game progresses, the stage design becomes more difficult with moving platforms, frozen platforms, and frozen moving platforms. Some phases are bonus stages where Mario has to grab 10 coins before the time runs out. If there's two players, it's a competition to get the most coins. Punchball Mario Brothers also has an entirely different story that is, frankly, bizarre. We'll quote it verbatim from the game's manual. At some point, humans gained the ability to use tools. At first, they were simple things using the bones of animals and fragments of rock. Using their wisdom, humans improved their tools, harnessing fire, wind, and nowadays, even atomic energy. They began to build up a sophisticated culture. On the other hand, however, there are people who still only use stone. How do they catch game and defend themselves from outsiders, using only their strong jumping power and stone spheres? They use those skillfully to defend themselves. Here, we introduce two such people. It seems their names are Mario and Luigi. Will they ever learn about sophisticated culture? Punchball Mario Brothers is a bit of a weird game, but the company also released a close match to the regular Mario Brothers format. Around the same time as Punchball Mario Brothers, Hudson developed and published Mario Brothers Special, with a similar release to Punchball in that Nintendo had little involvement. It was released on a variety of home computer formats, and the gameplay has some differences to the usual Mario Bros. format. There are four different stages to this version, with the first requiring Mario to reach the top of the stage through a series of moving gaps in the platforms, before activating switches at the top of the screen in quick succession to unlock an exit. The second stage is made up of trampolines, which Mario can land on to stun enemies before kicking them off with the goal being to take out all of the enemies on the stage to unlock the exit. The third stage introduces conveyor belts and a lift, with the goal being to navigate the stage and collect dollar signs. The last stage plays similar to the original game's bonus stage, but with dollar symbols instead of coins and a fairly strict time limit. Both Mario Bros. Special and Punchball Mario Bros. were clearly successful, as they did well enough for Hudson to come back for more but they released on hardware that wasn't very prominent outside the Far East, which basically kept them there. 
A couple of years after the release of Mario Bros. Special, 1986, Hudson released Super Mario Bros. Special, this time around changing up the format of the massively successful Super Mario Bros. This was the second Nintendo-licensed follow-up to their NES-heavy hitter, being released just two months after the Lost Levels, but not for the Nintendo home system. It was instead released on two home computers, the PC-8801 and the Sharp X1. Although this game appears to be very similar to the NES title, there are a number of new levels and, due to hardware limitations, no smooth horizontal scrolling, instead utilising a screen-by-screen -screen transition. This was done to different levels of success across the two versions of the game, with the X1 sliding the next screen into view and the PC-8801 having the horrendous effect of turning the screen black before loading the next into play. What gives these titles an interesting twist over the original NES Super Mario Bros. is their use of earlier power-ups and enemies from previous Mario titles, such as sidesteppers, fighter flies, fireballs, and even the rolling barrels or hammer power from Donkey Kong. All of these enemies utilize the same mechanics as their earlier appearance too, with Mario being unable to simply jump on them to defeat them, and instead needing to be taken out from below or with the use of a power-up. Nintendo also released their own quasi-sequel to the original Mario Brothers in the same year as Super Mario Special, Katakita Mario Brothers, translating to Mario Brothers Have Returned. This updated version of the original Mario Brothers game was ultimately the last Mario title to be published on the Famicom. The game brought a number of new levels, the ability to alter direction whilst in mid-air, retained high scores, and even the ability to register the name, age, and gender of players 1 and 2. The biggest addition, however, was the inclusion of a new game mode called Nagatanian World, which enables players a chance to continue the game after running out of lives, though not without having to first win a spin on a randomized slot machine minigame. This chance is only offered once per game, but can reward the player with four, two, or just a single additional life after a game over. The main focus of this extra mode, however, is in its prizes. By attaining a score over a certain value, the game provides promotional codes which can yield real-world rewards. After scoring 100,000 points, a code is given which could be mailed to Nintendo for a chance to win a set of Mario playing cards. After 200,000 points, participants were in for a chance to win a copy of Super Mario Bros. 3, which had released just one month prior to Katakita Mario Bros. Win or lose, the entrant would receive a free Mario keyring, with the promotion running from November of 1998 to May 1989. Possibly the most interesting and somewhat unique addition to Katakita Mario Bros. was its inclusion of advertising. These ads would appear during level transitions, advertising various Mario titles, such as Mario Bros. 3, but also, strangely, Japanese food company Nagatanian, who had sponsored the game's production. While this version of Mario Bros. never came to America, a slightly altered version did see a release in Europe as Mario Bros. Classic Series in 1993. While some of the content of Katakita Mario Bros. was removed, this version kept the improved controls and physics and had some additional graphical improvements. It was a good-looking NES title, just like our next two games. 
Family Computer Golf Japan Course and Family Computer Golf US Course are Japan-exclusive golf titles released for the Famicom Disk System on February 21st and June 14th, 1987 respectively. Japan Course uses similar gameplay to 1984's Golf on NES, while US Course is more similar to NES Open Tournament Golf. Japan Course stars both Mario and Luigi, while US Course stars various alterations of Mario. And this is actually where Mario's America outfit in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate originates. Both games have single and multiplayer modes, but US Course allows for up to four players, while Japan Course only has two-player multiplayer. One of the most interesting aspects of these titles is that they both supported disc facts. Games that supported disc facts came on special blue discs and let players submit their high scores and personal data to Nintendo via special fax kiosks that could be found across Japan. Over 150,000 high scores were sent in to Nintendo across both games, with the best scores winning some enviable prizes. The top 100 winners of the Japan Course Contest got a Champions Course Gold Disc, which came with a special case and a gold plaque. Not only did the plaque have the winner's name and rank printed on it, so did the actual game's title screen. Another 5,000 entrants received the Pro Course Gold Disc. This version is not customized, with the title screen simply saying, prize winning. The top 100 winners of the US Course Contest got a gold trophy, and the top 10,000 players overall got a gold cartridge of Punch-Out. But there was another special prize given only to players that scored a hole-in-one. Nintendo selected 1,000 of them at random and sent them all a special gold disc version of the US course known as Family Computer Golf Prize Card. The special versions of both Japan and US course also had an extra level. It's not clear why these games were never localized for the West, but it's also worth noting that NES Open Tournament Golf released only a few years after these games and added even more polish to the gameplay and presentation, making these two games redundant. It's also a bit odd that a game that literally had US course in its name was never released in the US. Mario would make his way to a different type of course soon after, with 1987's Famicom Grand Prix F1 Race for the Famicom Disk System. Players would be put behind the wheel of a Formula One race car, either on their own or against other Mario lookalikes on the track. Each car would have fuel and health gauges, which would deteriorate if the player drives off-road or whenever they crash into walls or other drivers. As with most racing games, these could be recovered by taking a dip into the pit stop for a brief period of time, repaired by, once again, a number of Mario lookalikes. Much like the family computer golf titles, F1 Race had a tournament where the top 100 players for each of the game's four difficulty settings received a personalized trophy, along with a poster that featured the names of all 400 winners. All winners and runners-up also received a Super Mario Bros. Game & Watch, as well as a fake driver's license based on the game. The game proved popular enough to get a sequel in Famicom Grand Prix 2 3D Hot Rally. As the title suggests, this game played in 3D thanks to the supplied 3D glasses. However, the Mario Brothers only appear on the cover and cannot be seen in-game. The original Famicom Grand Prix F1 race was reportedly planned to release in the United States at some point, but the localization was scrapped. 
Mario & Wario is perhaps one of the more unique games to never be localized in the US, following the story of Mario and his friends exploring a magical forest. While in the woods, trying to confirm a legend they heard, Luigi gets lost from the group, and so the gang splits up and tries to find him. During the search, Wario drops a bucket on Mario's head. However, Wanda, the magical fairy that Mario and his friends were searching for, decides to intervene and help them out. Unable to remove the bucket, Wanda takes it upon herself to help guide Mario and his friends through a series of puzzles to reunite them with the lost Luigi. The gameplay revolves around using the Super Nintendo mouse peripheral to control Wanda. Clicking on objects makes Wanda interact with them, allowing the player to create a safe passage for the characters. The main aim is to have them meet up with Luigi at the end of each stage in order to remove Wario's unyielding bucket. The gameplay is often compared to the Mario vs Donkey Kong series, with some differences. Characters walk forwards automatically, so making sure they don't walk into danger is important. Each character has their own set speed, with Mario being faster than Peach and Yoshi being faster than Mario. Mario & Wario was designed by Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri and was developed by the team at Game Freak. This makes Mario & Wario the second title Game Freak ever created with Nintendo, after Yoshi on the NES. Their next time developing with Nintendo would be for the renowned Pokemon games. In fact, Mario & Wario even shares the same composer as Pokemon, Junichi Masuda. Many people also believe that the World 7 music of Mario & Wario sounds similar to the Route 24 and 25 track heard in the first generation of Pokemon games. There's even a sly nod to the game in Pokemon Red and Blue. When examined, the Super Nintendo in the Copycat's house in Saffron City states the game on screen shows Mario with a bucket on his head. This reference was even carried forward to the game's remakes, Fire Red and Leaf Green. Bringing Mario and Wario to the West would have been a quick and easy process, as the game's text is written entirely in English. So why was it never localized? The answer to this is most likely its sales figures. The title sold relatively poorly in Japan, as did Mario Paint, which also used the Super Nintendo mouse. Mario & Wario sold roughly 500,000 copies in Japan, over 200,000 less than Mario Paint in the region. To put this into perspective, Super Mario World released three years prior and sold 3.5 million units in Japan alone. Also, seeing as Mario & Wario required the SNES mouse to function, the game would also be sold at a higher price if it were bundled with the peripheral. In Japan, Mario & Wario was sold bundled with the mouse for 9,500 yen, which back in 1993 was about 100 US dollars. Since most SNES games were $50 at the time, this would probably have been a hard sell in the US market. That said, there is some evidence that there were plans to release the game overseas, even if only briefly. A preview for the game can be found in the September 1993 edition of Nintendo Power, which compared the game to Lemmings. Kellogg's Serial also ran a competition that showed the box art of Mario & Wario among its prizes. Within the entry form though, no publishing date had been set, and the game simply had an estimated release of 1994. 
Now, almost certainly the rarest game on our journey today is Yoshi no Cookie Kurupon Oven de Cookie. This is essentially a more expansive version of Yoshi's Cookie which released a year later and was developed by National Human Electronics, a former division of Panasonic, to promote Panasonic's new Kurupon Oven. Unlike the international version, this release of the game includes not just the content found in Yoshi's Cookie, but an additional mode which has Yoshi navigating a map in a similar manner to Super Mario World. Yoshi must navigate the small island, teaching the player how to cook real versions of the cookies featured throughout the game, such as the iconic checkerboard, heart, and flower cookies. Yoshi no Cookie Kurupon Oven de Cookie is considered a highly sought-after and expensive collector's item, as only 500 copies of the game were ever produced. The Satellaview, a Japanese exclusive add-on for the SNES which we've brought up multiple times before on the channel, also had several Mario titles most of you probably haven't played or perhaps even heard of. The Satellaview would essentially connect to a digital radio broadcast to listen to music and, most importantly, download unique games or titles with special conditions. These were typically altered versions of a standard retail title, but there were a number of games made just for the Satellaview that were only available for a limited time. One of these was Undaki 30 Shark Turtle Battle Mario version, often shortened to Undaki Same Game. This game was developed by Hudson Soft and was also made available in a cartridge format with a limited run in 1995. Its gameplay is effectively just the classic solitaire card game Monte Carlo, whereby selecting two icons of the same type next to each other will remove both icons from play, with the goal being to remove all cards. Considering the game's simplicity, it shouldn't be surprising that it was distributed as a downloadable title via the Satellaview. This edition was broadcast every Monday at 5.30pm, and as with many Satellaview games, it was accompanied by a radio show. It even starred Sugiyama Kazuko, the Japanese voice of Bomberman, and aired from April 1995 for about a year. The game also has the honor of being one of the few titles to support the Super Famicom Mouse. Wario's Wood had its own curious remixed version made exclusively for distribution through the Satellaview. In 1997, Nintendo published Wario's Wood's Bakusho version, a game that saw a decent share of contention. The original game released on both the NES and SNES internationally, but only on the Famicom in Japan. The Satellaview title, which plays exactly like Wario's Woods, simply replaces various characters from the game with the comedy duo Bakusho Mondai. Around this time, many began to say that Nintendo was failing to deliver unique experiences with the Satellaview service, and this mildly altered version of a pre-existing title did not help their case. The company distributed a second version of Wario's Woods on the service called Wario's Woods Again, making very few changes from the international SNES version and lacked a couple of game modes and dialogue in the game's story mode. Birdo was also MIA, replaced by the female Satellaview avatar. But the complaints surrounding remakes and rebranding of existing Nintendo games wouldn't stop with Wario's Woods. Nintendo's interest in live broadcast events was evident thanks to the variety of games available via the Satellaview, such as the quiz game series Satella-Q. Each week, a new version of Satella-Q would broadcast. Hosted by Toad, the quiz required players to not just answer a variety of questions, but also play a number of incredibly simple minigames. These quizzes would be rebroadcast at regular intervals, rather than being played at exclusive times each week. 
Toad would read questions for the player to answer through the system's Soundlink system, but music would also be broadcast ranging in styles from classical to J-pop and even British rock, with some tracks being used as part of the questions themselves. The next game on our list is BS Super Mario USA, a Satellaview timed exclusive follow-up to Super Mario Bros. 2, known as Super Mario USA in Japan. As with other Satellaview titles, it was released episodically over a period of four weeks, with each episode being on a strict time limit. Each episode featured a different world from Super Mario Bros. 2, with three stages and an end boss using the updated 16-bit graphics from the Super Nintendo's Mario All-Stars release. Functionally, it is virtually identical besides some minor collision updates, but there are a few substantial changes to the overall gameplay. A 50-minute timer was added, which includes timed events that force the player to change character during play. Once the player finishes all three stages and defeats the boss, they're able to go back and freely swap between the stages at any time until the timer runs out. Most notably, a point system was added to the game. Players earn points by simply collecting coins, defeating enemies, or collecting special items, the most valuable of which is the Golden Mario statue. Not only does it give the player an extra life and refill their health, but is also worth 50,000 points. There's a total of 10 of these for each episode, three to collect from each stage, as well as one to be collected from the end of episode boss. The player has the opportunity to earn lots of coins and extra lives when the timer runs out. At this point, the player is thrown into the bonus chance for three minutes, where players can significantly increase the number of coins and extra lives, which will add to their final score. At the end of the episode, following the credit roll, today's results screen is shown, also including the player's extra lives. After the score has been tallied, players are asked if they want to submit the score for the Power Challenge tournament, with the winners being announced in a news broadcast on the Satellaview's internal newspaper. Each week, the top 10 highest scorers receive a limited edition t-shirt and certificate. The first place winner also got a physical Golden Mario statue similar to that which appears in the game. Similarly to other BS titles, Super Mario USA made use of the Soundlink feature, supplying the player with voiceover for storytelling as well as hints and tips. Interestingly, none of the musical jingles featured in the game are from Super Mario Bros. 2. Instead, the soundtrack consists of music from Super Mario World, as well as the Japan-exclusive compilation CD Super Mario Bros. 1-2-3 Hop Step Jump. Excitebike Bun Bun Mario Battle Stadium, as you can expect with its title, was an Excitebike remake, or sequel if you will, featuring a lineup of Mario characters. The game was developed by Nintendo and released in four different episodes, with Episode 1 featuring Mario, Luigi and Toad, Episode 2 adding Wario, Episode 3 adding Peach, and Episode 4 adding Yoshi, though removing Luigi for some reason. Non-playable races would be different coloured Koopa Troopers. What's interesting about Bun Bun Mario was that it was entirely exclusive to the Satellaview. The game would be a wholly new creation for the 16-bit era, and the only entry in the Excitebike series for the SNES, with it being three more years before Excitebike 64's release. As an interesting aside, in the game's code, it's also possible to find a bonus game mode which would ultimately go completely unused. 
The title also featured voice acting, with one of Charles Martinet's earliest appearances as Mario. After Excitebike, Mario would revisit one of his oldest occupations, as a member of a building wrecking crew. The original Wrecking Crew was released in 1985 for the NES as a launch title, but the game received a 16-bit sequel for the Super Famicom called Wrecking Crew 98, first as a downloadable title with the Nintendo Power flashable cartridge service in January of 1998, then as a standard cartridge release in May later that year. The game sees Mario return from a trip outside the Mushroom Kingdom, only to find Bowser constructing new hideouts across the kingdom. As a result, his new buildings are blocking out the sun, depriving the landscape of sunlight. In a bid to counter this, Mario sets out to demolish the new hideouts with his trusty hammer. On his journey, he encounters former adversaries from the original Wrecking Crew, including rival Foreman Spike. The game featured a full story mode, versus mode, and a tournament mode. Its premise is simple, players break tiles to line up colors of three or more, whilst avoiding various hazards such as enemies that travel down the stage. It isn't quite the same game as the original Wrecking Crew released for the NES, but for those that wish to play that title, it has also been bundled within this new game as well. This title never had an international release due to the year in which it was published. Nintendo's different international divisions ended the publication of SNES games in 1997, a year prior to Wrecking Crew 98's release. It never even had a chance. One of the more unique exclusives Mario had in Japan was Mario no Photopea, more closely resembling a piece of software that would be unique in the Nintendo 64's entire library thanks to its implementation of smart media cards. Mario no Photopea released in 1998 and featured an array of photo editing tools, alongside puzzles that are constructed out of a player's compositions. Essentially, an early example of user-generated content in a console video game, and another example of Nintendo's attempts to stake a claim in Japan's continued push towards the home computer market. Lending itself to this, the cartridge itself featured two smart media slots, allowing for users to import their own images from a PC or digital camera. These images could be touched up using the built-in editing tools and even exported back to a PC or Fuji printing kiosk. Plans had been made to allow for compatibility with the 64DD floppy drive, which would have been a major inclusion when comparing the storage sizes of smart media to floppy disks, going from less than 2 megabytes to 64 megabytes. As a result of severe delays in the disk drive peripheral, however, this functionality was removed. That said, there were four optional smart media cards produced for use with this title specifically, all with preloaded graphics. These included a card for Yoshi and The Legend of Zelda, as well as Bomberman, and oddly, Sylvanian Families. The next game series we're looking at was similar to Photopea, but actually once planned as a sequel to Mario Paint, the Mario Artist series. The Mario Artist suite was created for the 64DD, and is made up of four titles which can be used in conjunction with one another. The first game, Paint Studio, was released alongside the 64DD, and in a bundle featuring the 64DD, Paint Studio, a Nintendo 64 mouse, and a RandNet internet service subscription. Its original title was Creator, then Mario Paint 64, before being renamed Picture Maker, then Mario Artist and Camera, until releasing in December 1999 as Paint Studio. 
Paint Studio launched alongside the 64DD and focused on utilizing the 3D potential of the N64. This title is probably the closest of all the Mario Artist games to Mario Paint, and is often described as a 90s kid-focused Adobe Photoshop. This first entry in the series was commissioned by Nintendo from UK studio Software Creations, who made creation tools for music production on the original N64. Players can use a variety of brushes, textures, or stamps to make art, and even animation. Various stamps of pre-existing Nintendo artwork can be used, including all Generation 1 Pokemon, a wide array of Mario characters, Banjo-Kazooie, Diddy Kong Racing, and a select few others. There's even a unique four-player mode included in the game, allowing four players to paint at the same time. There's also three different 3D environments that can be explored, Mars, Underwater, and Dinosaur Land where players move through the locations, taking pictures of the creatures inhabiting them, similar to Pokemon Snap. Players can even edit the textures of some of these creatures. The next game in this mini-series is Mario Artist Talent Studio, released February 23rd, 2000. The software came bundled with the Nintendo 64 capture cartridge, an adapter that let users hook up an analog video source, like a digital camcorder or tape player and record movies onto the Nintendo 64. The title is mostly an animation suite, letting players create their own 3D characters by choosing body proportions, facial features, clothing, hair, and so on. Players can also insert their own images onto 3D models. The models can then be used to make movies, with the characters dressed in various clothes and accessories, animated to sound and music, with special effects added on top. The game also supports the transfer pack, letting players connect a Game Boy camera to the system to take photos for use in-game, a feature that was originally planned for Perfect Dark before being removed. After Talent Studio came Mario Artist Communication Kit on June 29th, 2000. The disc let players connect to the internet and Randnet's NetStudio, a service that gave users the opportunity to share their Mario Artist suite creations with other Randnet users. The service provided a variety of contests as well as printing services through mail order. The disc for the communication kit also contains content that could be added to Paint Studio. The Randnet service ran for only 14 months before it was taken offline, effectively rendering the communication kit unusable. The last Mario Artist disc was Polygon Studio, releasing August 29th, 2000, with 3D graphics studio Nichimen Graphics heading the technical development. This entry in the suite has a 3D graphics editor and lets users design their own 3D models, though with only simplistic control. Originally called Polygon Maker, this game was announced at Nintendo's Space World event in 1996, but renamed Polygon Studio for Space World 1999. By connecting to Randnet servers, it was possible to order papercraft printouts of user-created 3D models, which were printed and sent to the user to be cut out and constructed as paper models. There's also some bonus minigames included in this entry, such as Sound Bomber, providing a selection of different minigames making use of the player-created 3D model within them, as well as Go Go Park, which sees the player wind up their creation in order to have it stop before launching off of a cliff. The title even includes a particularly strange 3D area called the Experimental World. 
Within this environment are an array of toasters, toast included, which guide the player through the world so they can find new 3D objects to utilize within the model editor. Some parts are known as power blocks, which provide the creation with the ability to move more quickly. Paint Studios developers, Software Creations, claimed that the Mario Artist game suffered from Nintendo's American and Japanese divisions butting heads. Paint Studio originally included audio creation functionality, but it was decided to have this cut from the game and put into an entirely separate piece of software, though this would never be released. The Pickford brothers, who worked with Software Creations, claim on their website, Nintendo in Japan took control and rejected many of the ideas which had been accepted enthusiastically by the Americans, steering the project in a different direction after John left Software Creations to form Z2, and throwing away loads of work. The series was set to be even more extensive, with four more entries in the series being planned but never released. These included Game Maker, Graphical Message Maker, Sound Maker, and Video Jockey Maker. These games actually have some relatively unknown or unused data. A hidden video of the late president of Nintendo, Hiroshi Yamauchi, can be found within Talent Studio, where he stumbles over how to talk about what Talent Studio actually is. However, the most interesting secret not seen in the series can be found in Paint Studio, where the English developers clearly left unused text in the game's data unsavory by Nintendo's standards. Debug text pertaining to the game's initialization includes a fatal error message which reads, Can't create N64DD manager. Expect things to f**k up. The Mario Artist games may have only been received by a small audience, but they undeniably inspired future work by Nintendo. Polygon Studios' Sound Bomber is the predecessor to the WarioWare series, including a number of microgames which would go on to be included in WarioWare, though with new names, graphics, and controls. In fact, the first level of the original WarioWare release, being played through a boombox, is a direct reference to the Sound Bomber mode. Talent Studio, on the other hand, would also serve as the inspiration for the cancelled GameCube title, Stage Debut. Shigeru Miyamoto claimed that Stage Debut is actually the direct descendant of Talent Studio, and while it was never released, the work on Stage Debut served as the basis for Nintendo's Mii characters. Of course, ultimately, these games would never receive English localization, and the obvious reason for this is the series requirement of using a 64DD add-on. As the 64DD never left Japan, neither did these artistic tools. Sales of Paint Studio also demonstrate the 64DD's troubles in Japan, and gives weight to its lack of localization, with its developer, Software Creations, estimating that it sold only 7,500 copies. With that said, Luigi Blood, a preserver of 64DD games, has translated the three games within the suite, Paint, Talent, and Polygon Studios. Going back to something slightly more traditional, Mario Golf is one branch of the franchise's sports spin-offs which gained a decent following, particularly considering the less-than-major interest that comes to golf titles in general. But one game in the series only saw release in Japan in May of 2001, Mobile Golf. This was a unique entry, not just in the Mario Golf series, but even on the Game Boy Color, being released alongside an adapter that gave players the opportunity to connect to the internet and play against others. 
the adapter would connect the Game Boy Color to a mobile phone, allowing games to connect to mobile phone networks to send and receive data. Similar to the other Mario Golf games, the player can pick one of four human characters to play through an RPG-style story, gaining experience and unlocking other characters as they progress through the game. Mario, Princess Peach, Yoshi, and Foreman Spike were all unlockable by connecting the game online as a sort of early form of DLC. Though the service has of course ended since, and as such, they can no longer be accessed without hacking. Mobile Golf was in fact the last Game Boy Color game to be published on the Game Boy Color, which, alongside the inclusion of complicated networking features, likely contributed to it never being released outside of Japan. Nintendo were just most likely interested in focusing their efforts internationally on the Game Boy Advance. Our next game is Nintendo Puzzle Collection, which is a bit of a unique case. Released in Japan in 2003 for the GameCube, this is a collection of three games in one. Dr. Mario, Yoshi's Cookie, and Panel de Pon, better known in the US as Tetris Attack. Early versions of the collection were known as the Masterpiece Puzzle Collection, with a primary focus on creating a title that would appeal to women, with famed Japanese actress Asami Abe being brought in for televised advertising. Each game is based on an earlier release, with Dr. Mario being a port of Dr. Mario 64, Panel de Pon being based on an unreleased Nintendo 64 version of the game which got reworked and released in the US as Pokemon Puzzle League. Yoshi's Cookie, however, is an all-new game made specifically for this compilation, and never released in any form in the West. It even had a four-player multiplayer mode where each player assumed the role of Mario, Yoshi, Peach, and Bowser. An interesting feature of this title is the ability for the player to connect their Game Boy Advance to the GameCube system through a link cable, allowing for a downloadable version of each title on the handheld, such as an emulated version of the original NES release of Dr. Mario. Despite the collection having been demoed at the usually US-centric E3 gaming convention, with a release having been slated for both North America and Europe, no such release was ever made. The game was even rated by the ESRB, so it was probably localized in full. So why was it canned? Nintendo published an unusually large amount of GameCube games in 2003, 11 in North America, 15 in Japan, and 9 in Europe. So maybe they were just overstretched and decided not to bring Puzzle Collection to the West. Or maybe it was just low sales. We'd love to say definitively, but Nintendo never shared sales figures for the game. It would be two more years before another Japanese-exclusive Mario title was released in Yakuman DS, developed by Nintendo and their close partners, Intelligent Systems, famed for their work on the likes of WarioWare, Fire Emblem, and Paper Mario. You wouldn't be able to guess it from the game's box art, but yes, this is a Mario game. The title was released in Spring 2005, exclusively in Japan and is, loosely speaking, a sequel to the original Yakuman released on the Game Boy nearly two decades earlier. The game is simply a Richie Mahjong game with Mario and his friends shoehorned in, allowing four players to go up against one another thanks to the DS's wireless connectivity. Despite being a regional exclusive, the game proved to be popular enough to earn a re-release a year later, this time taking advantage of the DS's Wi-Fi capabilities, allowing players to compete online. Mario would make an appearance in another DS title, 
this time developed by Square Enix as part of the Itadaki Street franchise, a series known for crossing different properties such as the more widely known follow-up game on the Wii, Fortune Street. Itadaki Street DS was released in 2007, and involves a Monopoly-style board where the player must purchase properties while playing a variety of minigames along the way to try and gain an advantage, similar to Mario Party. Not only does the game involve familiar faces from the Mario series, but also several characters from Dragon Quest. For the most part, the game matches closely with the Wii's Fortune Street release, but unlike the Wii game, this version stayed in Japan. Another Mario game without any presence in the US was actually a special reward to the Japanese Club Nintendo program, Club Nintendo Picross, for the Nintendo 3DS. Released in 2012, the game was, as one might expect, a special release of Picross, focusing on various Nintendo franchises. The only way in which it could be downloaded was by redeeming the title with 80 Club Nintendo points, though it did also receive a release in South Korea, which could be earned by accessing the 3DS eShop throughout most of 2012, or as a reward with a purchase of New Super Mario Bros. 2 Gold Edition. This title received its own sequel just two years later, Club Nintendo Picross Plus, which included all of the same puzzles as the first title, with 100 additional stages added in, again only available through Club Nintendo. Since the discontinuation of the Nintendo 3DS, there hasn't been another Mario title released exclusively to Japan, and we think it's somewhat unlikely that many more Mario titles will ever have such a limited release. The practice of Nintendo only distributing their games to Japanese audiences is essentially a thing of the past. Did you know? The developers of New Super Luigi U cheated to make the game easier than they wanted you to think it is. Luigi U was originally released as DLC for New Super Mario Bros. U, but with harder levels that only gave you 100 seconds to reach the flagpole. But the devs made Luigi seconds 35% longer than Mario seconds. In an interview, the devs said even though they're the guys who made the stages, they were having trouble beating them that quick, and worried the game'd be too hard for the fans at home. They considered making all the stages shorter, or doubling the timer to 200 seconds, but they didn't want to redesign the whole game, and 100 was such a nice round number, so they fudged the numbers. We timed it ourselves, and the seconds in most Mario games, including New Super Mario Bros. U, aren't real seconds. Each tick is really only about three quarters of a second, but for the Luigi DLC, they make each tick one actual second. In other words, 100 Luigi seconds are about 135 Mario seconds, which makes the game a lot easier than you're led to believe. Not only on Wii U, but also the Switch Deluxe Edition. We recently replayed all the new Super Mario games, read a bunch of old interviews, and did some digging to find some secrets, easter eggs, and behind-the-scenes secrets for the entire series. Now, we know these games aren't the most highly regarded Mario games, and a lot of folks say they can't hold a candle to 3D Mario. But let's get one thing clear. In terms of sales, the new Super Mario games are way more popular than 3D Mario. The first one sold over 30 million copies, which is more than the entire Metroid and F-Zero franchises combined. And the sequel on Wii sold another 30 million. With those kind of numbers, you might be wondering why they haven't made a new one in almost a decade. We'll get to that later, but first, let's get into some trivia.
For most people, when they think of Mario development, they think of Shigeru Miyamoto. But when it comes to the new Super Series, they should really be thinking of another guy, Takashi Tezuka, who's basically been in charge of 2D Mario since the Super Nintendo. According to Miyamoto, Mario was created not only by myself, but also with Mr. Tezuka. I am kind of shy accepting all the compliments myself all the time. Tezuka's sort of my right-hand man at Nintendo, and he's responsible for new Super Mario Bros. We talk a lot about the game, but basically he's in charge. One thing that might surprise fans of the new Super games is why they have that distinctive art style. Every 2D Mario that came before was 2D pixel art, but new Super Mario was more like 2.5D, and used 3D models as well as sprites made from pre-rendered 3D models. All the sequels use that art style as well. At this point, it's become the series' iconic look. But it wasn't actually an artistic choice. According to Tezuka, it was mostly just because it was way easier. Back when the first game launched on DS, he told Nintendo Power, We chose that style because it makes certain types of expression easier. We can rotate characters, make them bigger, make them smaller, etc. Those types of things are more difficult with 2D sprites. Also, current development tools tend to favor 3D graphics. New Super Mario Bros. on DS was originally supposed to have two-player co-op. A few screenshots can be seen in an issue of Nintendo Power printed about six months before the game hit store shelves. The magazine says, New Super Mario Bros. features a two-player co-op mode, a for the series. Not content simply to keep Luigi out of the limelight, Mario now uses his brother as a human shield. Maybe next time Luigi should leave his hotshot sibling to rot in the haunted mansion. Well, that's pretty much what happened, since co-op ended up getting cut and replaced with a small versus mode with only five stages. You can play single player as Luigi, but he has the exact same physics as Mario, so it's just a cosmetic difference. The gaming press reported seeing an early build where Bowser was playable as well, possibly as a reward for beating the game, but it didn't make it into the final game. The idea for full-on co-op eventually made its way into New Super Mario Bros. Wii, but instead of just two or three characters, it had four. Mario, Luigi, a la Gold the Yellow Toad, and Buck and Barry the Blue Toad. Although we should note these toad names are contentious, they're commonly used by fans, but the Super Mario Wiki refuses to acknowledge them. Those names come from a Destructoid article claiming a Nintendo of America employee shared them off-camera, but some fans thought the article was a joke. So we checked in with Destructoid's author for more details, and he said there were nicknames used by some members of the Japanese Mario team, but Miyamoto made it clear that he didn't want those toads to have names, ever. So whether they're really named a la Gold and Buck and Barry, we'll leave that up to you to decide. Regardless, all four characters controlled identically and didn't have unique physics or abilities. Other characters like Wario and Waluigi were considered, but fans would have expected them to have special skills, and Nintendo didn't want to do that. According to Miyamoto, Mario and Luigi are the same as always, of course, and suggestions for the other two characters included Wario and Waluigi, Toad, and Princess Peach. The thing is that with Wario, we need to have a fart attack, Peach would have to be able to fly with her skirt, and so on. With this game, we wanted every character to play the same way. Okay, Miyamoto, we suppose that does keep everyone on a more even playing field, but come on, it ain't eSports, it's a party game. Peach flying and Wario farting would have been way better than two toads. After Mario Wii was already finished, the devs kept on playing it for fun, and during their play sessions, they came up with some ideas for a challenge mode. But it was too late to add it into the game, and DLC wasn't really a thing back then, at least not for Nintendo. They still wanted to share those challenges with fans though, so they posted them on Nintendo's official Japanese website. There were 89 challenges, all ranked from 1 to 5 stars, like finishing levels with 0 points, self-imposed limitations like winning with Mini Mario, and speedrun times for every stage. Nintendo released the challenge list in English too, but for some reason they later deleted it. They also banned that webpage from the Internet Archive, so it's completely wiped off the Internet with no way to find it. 
Lucky for us, though, one of our viewers printed it out on a piece of paper about a decade ago and sent us pictures. So here they are if you're curious, or if you're a hardcore fan who thinks you've got what it takes to complete them. Having to get those challenges off a website wasn't ideal, though, which is why the devs built them directly into the next game, New Super Mario Bros. U, as a separate mode available right from the home screen. There's actually less of them, with Mario U having only 67 instead of 89, but they take place on their own custom courses, so it's definitely a more fleshed-out experience. This situation of supplemental content being online instead of in the game itself was actually reversed for hint movies. They were included in Mario Wii, but only on the internet for Mario U. In case you don't remember, if you go to Peach's Castle in Mario Wii, you can watch videos that teach you how to do super skills, speedruns, and secrets. There's some tricky techniques in there, so tricky in fact that some fans thought they were tool-assisted or made by bots. But the gameplay was actually from Nintendo debuggers, with a director and other high-level staff breathing down their necks to make sure everything was perfect. Every time they went through a pipe, they had to go right down the middle. If there were a group of coins floating in the air, they either had to skip them for speed or grab them all. Only getting some was unacceptable, and meant they'd have to reset and start over. The debuggers replayed again and again until all 65 hint movies were absolutely flawless. They did something similar for Mario U, but this time Nintendo put all the hint movies on the game's YouTube channel. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. When New Super Mario Bros. Wii released in 2009, it outsold Mario Galaxy almost 3 to 1. But it might have sold a tiny bit more if not for an Australian man named James Burt. Burt got a copy from a local game shop about two weeks before the official release date. Then after some of his hacker buddies talked him into it, he uploaded the game to the internet so anyone could play it for free, and about 50,000 fans did exactly that. That's when things took a turn for the worst. We interviewed James, and he told us, My house was raided, and there were about six local authorities and Nintendo lawyers with big black plastic bags who came to my house and took my Wii and a handful of DVDs and Wii games. Long story short, he ended up owing Nintendo $1.6 million for potentially lost sales. Nintendo's senior director of anti-piracy told the gaming press that James would end up paying, quote, a significantly lesser amount. We asked James how much that undisclosed amount was, and he said it was zero dollars and zero cents. James never paid Nintendo a single penny. He declared bankruptcy as part of the agreement with Nintendo, which had some long-lasting effects on his credit score, but otherwise he counts himself lucky. He thinks Nintendo just wanted to make an example out of him to scare away other pirates who might want to do something similar. If you've heard this story before, you might have heard that three years later, Nintendo sent James a limited edition Ganondorf figurine. Gaming outlets framed it as Nintendo letting bygones be bygones, as sort of an olive branch to say that they forgave him for pirating Mario. That's a fun story, but James said that's not what actually happened. He told us, when journalists don't know, they just make it up, I guess. They never bothered to ask me, which is why I'm happy to go into detail with Digino Gaming. The real reason was that he won a contest at the local game shop, because he spent more money than anyone else that month on Nintendo products. So they gave him Ganondorf as a prize. James says even after everything that happened, he still loves Nintendo and doesn't have any hard feelings about the Mario lawsuit. And in case you're wondering, yes, they did eventually give him his Wii, games, and DVDs back. 
Nintendo games, and especially Mario, almost never leave Nintendo consoles, but Mario Wii was one of the few exceptions. Almost a decade after its original release, it got an official, upgraded port on the NVIDIA Shield TV. The original Wii version ran in 480p, but on the Shield, it runs at 1080p and 60fps. Here they are side by side, and we'll zoom in a little so it's easier to see the difference. Not only is it leagues better than the original, but it sold for just 10 bucks. A few other classic games got the same treatment and had their motion controls turned into normal controls, like Donkey Kong Country Returns and Twilight Princess. Nintendo agreed to the partnership as a way of expanding into the Chinese market. Unfortunately, though, they didn't sell too well. So some games that got announced, like Mario Kart Wii, never got released. Well, not officially, anyway. Some folks just downloaded Dolphin emulators on their shields and were off to the races. This video is mostly about the mainline New Super Mario games, but there's actually one more that most people don't even know exists. New Super Mario Bros. Wii Coin World was an arcade game developed by Capcom in 2011, two years after the Wii version. But unfortunately for Mario enthusiasts, it was only released in Japan. Coin World even had its own six-song soundtrack. Half are remixes of music from the mainline games, and the other half are fully original, one of which you're hearing right now. The soundtrack might actually be the best part of the game, because as far as gameplay, it's mostly a small-stakes gambling simulator. You have to cash in some real-life yen to get arcade tokens, then you'll be spending most of your time playing slots. Most forms of gambling are illegal in Japan, so even if you hit it big, you'll get more tokens you can exchange for real cash. All you really do is keep playing slots or spend them on other games in the same arcade. In addition to slots, Capcom also threw some simple minigames into the mix, a Bowser boss fight, and support for up to four players. Fans outside Japan aren't missing out on too much by not being able to play Coin World, unless they're really into gambling, of course. But it's definitely an interesting piece of Mario history, and you can't hate that soundtrack. After the first two new Super Mario games went gangbusters, Nintendo decided to do something they'd never done before, develop two 2D Mario games at the same time, one for 3DS and one for Wii U, with each team trying to outdo each other like rivals. But Nintendo didn't have enough developers for two full teams, so Tezuka started what he called a Mario Cram School to train a bunch of designers all at once. Yosuka Amano was one of the students, and was eventually chosen to direct the 3DS project. He said, Participants got a firm grasp of the basic ingredients of what makes 2D Super Mario enjoyable and experience actually making stages, so we were able to begin this project with a solid foundation. Mario Cram School resulted in courses twice the number of staff it usually takes to make Mario courses, and all that new blood allowed us to make something new that previous development teams so far hadn't. With both games being made at the same time, Tezuka was constantly mixing them up, and sometimes people had to remind him which game they were currently working on. He was trying to figure out how to make the two games unique, and after a lunch with Miyamoto, came back to the office with a new idea, to make the 3DS version focus on coin collecting. They were originally thinking about calling it New Super Mario Bros. Gold, but worried they might make it look like a small-scale spin-off, so they ended up calling it New Super Mario Bros. 2 instead, to send the message that this was a full-size mainline entry. To make collecting faster, the Cram School students added the gold block that shoots coins out of Mario's head. When they showed it to Miyamoto, he thought it was kinda dumb. According to the director Amano, Miyamoto-san said, I don't like it. He didn't like how you never really understand it. You put this thing you don't really understand on your head, and for no clear reason, coins come out. Miyamoto said that he hated how he didn't know what he was supposed to do after suddenly getting this block on his head. Miyamoto's got a background in industrial design, so the propeller mushroom introduced in the previous game made sense, but a block attaching to Mario's head and dumping out coins was just nonsense. Eventually, though, he reluctantly accepted and made it into the final game. Tezuka said that the goal of a million coins was meant to, quote, keep people coming back potentially forever, 
and he did mean forever. Worldwide, fans collected about 3 trillion coins. On our recent playthrough, we finished with 100% completion, grabbing every coin along the way. But when the credits rolled, we'd only managed to get about 50,000. We weren't even close, and full disclosure, we didn't replay stages forever and ever to get to a million. In the run-up to launch day, Nintendo used the Million Coin Challenge as a major marketing campaign, even mass emailing fans to get them excited for it, all while the actual reward was shrouded in mystery. A lot of fans were expecting something big, and speculation was wild about what it was going to unlock. But once the game released and people started crossing the finish line, everyone found out the reward was just… a different title screen. Some folks weren't too happy about it. But little did they know, there was another unlockable title screen for 9,999,999 coins, which changes the Mario statue into a Tanuki. New Super Mario Bros. 2 is generally considered the least memorable entry in the series, but it actually left a pretty hefty legacy. It was the game that introduced Gold Mario, who's pretty much everywhere now. He's been in three Mario Kart games, Mario Golf, Mario Tennis, Mario Party, and he's even got his own costume in Mario Odyssey. The game also got its own Smash Ultimate stage, where collecting 100 coins gets you the Gold Flower power-up. And New Super Mario Bros. 2 was even the first Nintendo game to release simultaneously in digital and physical formats. Of course, that's not to say the other games don't have legacies as well. Mario U arguably gave us the series' most pervasive addition, Nabbit the Thieving Rabbit. Originally, he was just a minigame character you had to chase down after he stole Toad's stuff, but he became a playable character in Luigi U and ultimately became a series mainstay, appearing in over a dozen games. He's shrouded in mystery. Some even think he's Bowser Jr. in disguise due to their masks, but both characters have been seen in the same place at the same time, so that theory doesn't hold up. In reality, there's only a couple solid facts known about him. If you check out his flag in Mario and Sonic at the Rio 2016 Olympic Games, it says he lives on the Mushroom Kingdom's secret island. That's the purple house you unlock after Mario used final boss. It's full of records, so we guess the implications that Nabbit's been following Mario and spying on him throughout the entire game. That interpretation's backed up by an easter egg, where if you take too long to open a treasure chest, Nabbit'll jump in and out of nowhere and steal it. Nintendo also added a little something to the Deluxe Edition. On Wii U, Mario gets a kiss from the princess after beating Bowser, but on Switch, you can see the same cutscene but with Nabbit being a peeping Tom. Speaking of easter eggs, the devs also added one into Mario U's title screen. Normally, it looks like this with all four characters butt stomping, but if you don't push any buttons, it'll autoplay cutscenes, then eventually cycle back to the title screen. But this time, Luigi will trip and misses his butt stomp, and stand around looking confused. This secret's also in the Switch version. The Switch version has been out for over four years now, and ten years since the original Wii U version, which has led many to ask, is there even going to be another new Super Mario game? In a couple 2012 interviews, Tezuka emphasized that they only want to release one game on each console. I don't know if you've noticed, but with each hardware iteration we release, we release a new Super Mario for each one. It would be difficult to bring two or three side-scrolling Mario games because the one we released has already done what we wanted to accomplish on that hardware. So possibly in his mind, U Deluxe counts as the one for the Switch hardware. Also, they kind of burnt themselves out. In another interview, the devs say they exhausted all their ideas when they released new Super Mario 2 and U in the same year, not to mention making both games DLC. One theory we've seen in recent years is that Mario Maker killed the mainline 2D series, that Nintendo must think there's no need for a new game when fans can make their own levels and play a near-infinite number built by millions of fans. But according to Dezuka, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Mario developers build up the whole world, making sure the courses all fit well together, he said in 2014. 
I don't think the overall fun you can have with an entire Mario game is the same as playing courses in Mario Maker. And of course, future Mario games will include lots of new features, so I don't think the two will ever be in competition. After Mario Maker 2 released, Tezuka said, I do think we've probably been influenced by the things we've seen people making in Super Mario Maker up to this point but I don't know exactly what sort of concrete form they would take in the Mario games in years to come. With things like that, we'll put the game out, see the reaction from the fans, then make decisions about what we'll do to include in games going forward. And shortly after that, for Mario's 30th anniversary, as the guy who's in charge of 2D Mario, he said his adventures are far from over. 30 years is just a checkpoint, and he fully intends to keep on making them. As for clues on what the next new Super is going to be like, it'll probably be a bit more like Luigi U. While that DLC was in development, Tezuka went back and played the older games like Mario 3, and discovered that the courses had gotten longer and longer with each new game without the devs even realizing it. That's one of the reasons the stages in Luigi U ended up being so short, and Tezuka says that he'd like to do that in future entries as well. Shorter stages with more packed into them. The fruits of that idea can already be seen in Mario Maker 2's story mode, with levels even shorter than the ones in Luigi U. And frankly, we'd be surprised if Nintendo passed on making another sequel when they sell tens of millions each. They didn't say that in all these interviews, but come on, this is Nintendo we're talking about. If there's one thing those fellas don't hate, it's money. Now that they've had a decade to come up with new ideas and gotten a boost from Mario Maker's fan-made levels, it seems like there's reasons to be optimistic for a new Super Mario.